0: One little girl is the first of six children born free in her family after the abolition of slavery. She is quickly orphaned, forced to fend for herself from the tender age of six years old. Despite all of her obstacles, including three unsuccessful marriages, abuse by white media and civilians and deteriorating health, she becomes America's first female self-made millionaire. The woman's name, Madam C.J. Walker the book, Self-Made, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's
1: get lit!
0: (laughs) Hi readers, this is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, <laughs> how are you, my friend? How are you doing this week,
1: girl? I'm doing really good. Yeah. Um, and, and let me just say, it's because, well, that doesn't make me feel good. But I've been out a lot this week. I feel like I went to the library. <laughs> I had to go out today because I broke my earbuds and I was just out and there were like a lot of people outside it's outrageous it's outrageous I feel like I need to wash the filth off
0: wash the filth off and you met my husband and I for a picnic no I you met me already. and my husband for a picnic sorry English majors yeah that was fun for us watching you
1: run away from the squirrels mm-hmm. listen listen So do you have a squirrel phobia that I didn't know about? I do. I can use that against you. Okay. I I mean, that was like, I feel like y'all weren't
0: biting the squirrel towards (laughs) me. We just wanted to see what would happen to you. Uh, Readers, apparently Alexis is deathly afraid of squirrels. (laughs) Cute little squirrels and she will freak out and do backflips and one uh, was chasing us now i think people feed him us yeah we took a little picnic in our neighborhood um me my husband and alexis we dragged her out the house and forced oh her to make God. pecan cheesecake which is awesome i would take a picture uh, of it <laughs> she's a really um, great um. cook but anyway um yeah there was a squirrel chasing our little picnic so people must feed him and he's used to it And he was waiting for us for our handout like hello
1: you in my house. I was on edge. <laughs> I was on edge the rest of the evening. <laughs> the rest of the evening. I was scared I was going to dream about it. Okay, so enough about all of the fun I had this week. Yeah. Um, Kari, what did you do? Nothing.
0: All right, readers. So let's move on. <laughs> Nothing. love it. Let's go. Now it's time for Society Says, where we share your comments with the rest of our lit society. Alexis, is there a comment you thought
1: particularly lit this week? Yes, and it actually wasn't this week. I had to go back. Well, I wanted to go back (laughs) to some of our original listeners, um, folks that listened early on. And this comment is from Apple Podcasts and it's from January 2020. So like our first month. So I'm really excited to read this one. This one is from Pursues. Oh, and that's a real life friend. Oh, cool. <laughs> and they say, awesome. This is the only podcast I listen to. And it's one of the best hours of my week. Funny, insightful, easy flow. These girls deliver a great show that will make you think about trending issues while also making you interested in reading oh thank you isn't that you. nice yeah i love that thank that you that for makes the kind feel words. good
0: thank you so much
1: how about you Carrie? so
0: i'm dipping into instagram this is a comment we received a few days ago from kelly underscore sunrose hi kelly I love your show. The conversations about Anna Karenina were so satisfying. I read it in June and needed someone to talk to about it. So I was definitely talking back to your podcast. Also, listen to the Warmth of Other Suns episodes last night while folding laundry. Thank you so much for sharing those conversations. Your grandmother's voice was a heart melting experience, sending so much appreciation your way. Thank you, Kelly. Isn't my grandma cute? Thank you. I think The Warmth of Other Sons is one of my favorite episodes. Uh, it's a two part. So episode one and two, um, just sharing our own family stories and learning about, you know, Black American history. It, it oh, was yeah. just really cool. And of course, we love Anna Karenina. So um, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I, I think one of my um, motivations for um, starting this podcast with you, Alexis, is to be able to talk about these books that move you. Uh, with other people who are also passionate about books. So this yeah. is like, you know, one of our favorite parts. So thank you so much, Kelly. And thank you so much, Perseus, for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Remember, readers, yes. to have your comments shared, message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or, and we especially love this one, leave us a five-star review on the iTunes Apple Podcast app. And your, your comment could be featured on our show. Yes. So let's move on to our theme of the week. Readers, each week we select a theme to discuss based on the book we're reading. And this week for Self Made, I chose the theme,
1: Three Best Ways
0: to Invest $1,000. You
1: know why I like this? Let me just tell you early on. Yeah. Because last week we talked about (laughs) making a business. Right. (laughs) Now we got $1,000. What can we
0: do with it? I love it. Yeah. So if you listen to our uh, coverage of Dapper Dan's book. We talked about how to turn your side hustle into a small business. So let's say you've done that or even you're thinking about doing that. But all you got to invest is a thousand dollars. What do you do with that money? Alexis, have you ever dabbled with um, short term or long term investments?
1: Um, No, not really. Um, nah, not really. Not even profit sharing within your
0: company or?
1: Well, yeah, I have kind of played with that. Um, moved some dollars around, decided to be, um, what do you call them when you're, um, When you, oh, aggressive, I've I've (laughs) adjusted that from aggressive to less aggressive to back to aggressive again. Yeah, I've done that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. But not like, oh, and actually I have bought some stocks and kind of watched those play around. You know, I'm so old. I forget these things sometimes.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, um, I will tell you, I love this theme because maybe $1,000 is quote unquote all you have. But it's a great beginning to start uh, making that money multiply for you, making it work for you. And I took some tips from NerdWallet. I love NerdWallet. It helped me get my uh, credit to where I wanted it to be. And then also InvestorJunkie.com. For a lot of us, investing isn't the point where it isn't what we're thinking about. We're thinking about getting out of or reducing our debt. And that's great. Mm-hmm. In fact, number one, um, out of these three best ways to invest a thousand dollars. Pay off most, if not all of your debt. And before thinking about investing, you should have little to no consumer debt. Consumer debt are things like credit cards, um, small personal loans. It doesn't really apply to your mortgage or things like that. But you do want to look at that income that's coming in and out that you really don't know what to do with. And if you're able to start investing that money. Um, So, yeah, don't think about investing when you still got maybe you know, $40,000 in student right. loans, or maybe do. Definitely. That's up to you. You got to look well, at you how much you're. Think
1: about it as a motivation. Yeah. You know, to get that debt down. And so you could start your investing. And if you've ever started a
0: weight loss journey, um, you know, you don't lose 50 pounds in a month. You really don't. So when you think about a weight loss goal, it may take you months, if not years to reach your goal. But you don't reach it faster by quitting. The same is true with investments. Um, So little by little, uh, you can pay down. You can pay off your debt. You can um, and you can start investing your money. Uh, Number two, invest for retirement or double your money with a 401k. Now this came from NerdWallet. I too um, have had experience like a lot of us with 401k or even profit sharing. My first um, investment was profit sharing for a bank. I was um, an executive for, (laughs) I mean, and I wasn't like, (laughs) <laughs> that was just my title. <laughs> so I don't want you to think I do lose it. Anyway, so um, they had an awesome profit sharing. Um, you was doing program. things over there. So mm-hmm. how do you invest for retirement? Um, if your 401k matches offers matching dollars, that 1000 could quickly turn into 2000 quickly. Mm-hmm. How? Depending on your plan, when you put money into your 401k, which happens as a salary deferral, which means it's pre-tax, um, that money is not taxed. Your company may put money in, too, to match or, um, you know, to equal a percentage of what you contributed. Most 401k plans don't accept lump sum contributions. So your thousand dollars figures this way. With your paycheck a bit smaller because of a 401k deduction, you can use the $1,000 as a cushion if you come up short on your monthly bills or you can repay yourself the difference each pay period. What that means is if you're having money taken out of your check uh, systematically to go into this 401k, you can still keep $1,000 to yourself for a type of cushion in an emergency, a quick emergency if you need it. An individual retirement account is like a 401k you open on your own. If your mm-hmm. company, if the company you work for doesn't offer 401k, consider opening an IRA. Um, since you're flying solo, there's no match. So, you know, that's unfortunate. For real, can we just stress that 401k matching? Get into that. If they're if they're willing to $3. match. Yeah. I had a um I worked for a company that matched dollar to dollar. So for real, that means every thousand dollars you invest, they're matching it. So that's two thousand dollars. That's a quick, easy way to double your money. You won't see it for a while, um, but th- that money will be there waiting for you. So um, if you don't have that, then an IRA is the best, next best option. And there's no match, but you still get a host of tax benefits, including the choice of tax deferred or tax-free investment growth. Um, I think based on your uh, suggestion, I pulled money from my 401k for my wedding. <laughs> and paid it off really quickly and that was awesome that was like a crazy easy decision (laughs) yeah and i called charles schwab and was like hey i kind of want some of this (laughs) and he was like yeah we can do that that's fine here you go and i had the money and i was like oh this is my money wait what's going on so yeah
1: so awesome. if I could mention, the only thing with that is you're paying back and it could be beneficial when you need it. You need it, you know, and I think you should take your money when you need <laughs> it. Um, but the only thing about that is when you're paying that back, it's like you're double paying. Yeah, that's the only thing about that.
0: And if you choose not to pay it back, then Uncle Sam is going to be like, huh, say what now? And they're going to tax you for it. (laughs) And that could change the tax bracket that you're in for the year. And that would really mess you up. So do it responsibly. Talk to your um, advisor first before taking any money from your 401k. And the best plan is always to not touch it if you can. If Um, So, yeah. Okay. And third, buy commission-free exchange-traded funds. Don't resign yourself to an IRA full of uninvested cash. Um, Perhaps the amount that you have invested is so small that it's hard to, um, you know, find a way to diversify. But ETFs are a great kind of index fund, but they have features that make them a good choice for small dollar investors like you might be. ETFs or these exchange traded funds are on the low end of the cost spectrum. And they also trade on an exchange like a stock, which means the minimum investment is a share price. That share price might be as little as five to $10. Um, the benefit of that, beyond the fact that it's the minimum you can meet, is that with $1,000, you can put together a few ETFs and diversify, which is always the goal. Diversify your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Pick a broker mm-hmm. with a commission-free ETF to avoid commission freeze, which can rack up really quickly. Um, and then I have one of my own. Start a side hustle. $1,000 might be the perfect amount to use to buy supplies perhaps a logo for your business or packaging, et cetera. Um, take that thousand dollars, open a new account. That's just for your side hustle, just for that business. And that's a, some banks will even, um, because you've opened a, an account with them, they'll even put money into it, which did our bank do that? No. Cause we got some cheap online bank. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> But, you know, I know Chase does that. I don't know if a thousand dollars is enough, but and without a direct deposit. I don't know if they'll do that, but look into it and, um, you know, find a way to make that a thousand dollars grow for you. And a side mm-hmm. hustle might be the perfect opportunity to do that. Um, you could, you know, start T-shirts, hand poured candles, cakes, whatever you do. Um, maybe that thousand dollars should be invested in you.
1: Um, yeah. Anything else you can think of? I know there's like an app, and it um there's a relatively it's not that new like Acorn. Um, yes, Acorn. I've been yeah. I using Acorn. Of, and people <laughs> love that. Like that's a great resource. So Acorn takes
0: your uh, change and invests it, which adds up. Um, you can also maybe again if you have Chase, uh, trade for free. Some stocks. I've done that. Like before Disney Plus came out, I bought some Disney stocks because they were really reasonable. Or before Southwest flew to Hawaii, I bought some Southwest stocks. Um, and that at the time was a good decision. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it, times change. But um, if you know of a company that you have an emotional attachment to that is planning to do something big in the foreseeable future, maybe invest. Um, so, And there are a lot of resources online for determining if an investment, if a stock is a good buy or not. Um, Yeah. So, you know, that's all fun, fun stuff. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I love it. All right. Well, you ready to move
1: on? I think so. All right. Let's take a break.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about Madam C.J. Walker, if that's even her real name? Who is she? (laughs) Well, let me just start by
1: talking about Alilia Bundles, who is the author of our book. Okay. And Alilia Bundles was born in 1952. She is the great, great granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. She graduated from... Harvard College and received a master's degree from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. And if you remember, um, that is the same school that Janet McDonald graduated from. Oh, in our um, Project Girl episode. Very cool. Yep. hmm. She is a member. Uh, Alolia is a member of the Phi Beta Kappa uh, Society. She's also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. It makes sense that Madam C.J.
0: Walker's uh, granddaughter's last name is Bundles.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Okay, so Alilia has worked as a producer for NBC News in New York, Houston, and Atlanta bureaus for Today Show and NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. She's a recipient of an Emmy and a Dupont Gold Baton. She founded the Madam. Walker Family Archives, the largest private collection of Walker photographs and memorabilia, and is brand historian for MCJW, a line of hair care products inspired by Madam Walker and manufactured by Sundial Brands, Available at Sephora. And this isn't oh. an ad. <laughs> okay, then. Okay. Uh, her articles and essays have been published in like the New York Times, Variety, Essence, O Magazine, she's got a blog, she's a speaker, she's an MC. I mean, she does stuff. <laughs> this book that we read this week, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, is her first book. It was a New York Times notable book about her entrepreneurial great-great-grandmother and is the inspiration for Self-Made, the fictional four-part Netflix series that stars uh, Octavia Spencer, and that premiered in March 2020. So if you can't find this book under On Her Own, On Her Own Ground, then you may find it under the heading Self-Made.
0: Yeah, was that miniseries really inspired by this book? (laughs)
1: I didn't watch it so oh, okay. but yes that is what that is what Alilia Bundle says. Mm. Well, Did you, you watch it?
0: Yeah, I watched like two episodes. I found it um full of fresh ingredients but a dish that was poorly undercooked. So Ooh. you have all of these great actors and the delivery, the storyline, it just felt um like it needed some guidance. And I'll say reading this book, I didn't feel like it was anything like the miniseries. So reading oh, wow. the truth, it was so different from what they create. And the truth was more in, intriguing in a lot of ways. But I guess we'll get to that later. Yeah, that's um, because so they actually say that in a book. Oh, right. OK. All right. Well, thank you for that. Now, if you could please give us a brief synopsis. No spoiler. Brief synopsis of self-made slash on her own ground.
1: All right. During a time when a woman's only job opportunities included farm laborers, washerwomen, and maids, Madam C.J. Walker takes advantage of the opportunities before her and pulls herself up from a life of struggle to build a hair care empire. Beautiful. Mm. Kari, mm-hmm. what were your first thoughts about this book?
0: Um, so I thought Madam C.J. Walker made a product to straighten women's hair. <laughs> <laughs> you and so many others. It's disgusting. Apparently that ain't the story, that ain't even what happened. Um so reading this from the beginning from her prologue, I was already educated and my misconceptions were corrected um which I loved. So I thought I was excited, you know, to to really delve into the story of a girl who was born who was the first in her family born into freedom Mm -hmm. and then became America's first female millionaire, self-made female millionaire. I was really excited. What about you? What were your first thoughts of um, self-made?
1: Well, I had heard of Madam C.J. Walker um, in life, but I didn't know much about her. So I was just really excited to read it when I heard the book was out. And actually this book was published in 2001. So it's, you know, she's kind of popped up over the, years on social media. So when the movie came out, it made me think about the book. So I went and looked for the book. Okay. So I was All right, ready cool. to read.
0: All right. Well, thank you for that. And if you're ready, let's get into our deep dive of self-made. The story right. of Madam CJ Walker It's full of spoilers. By the way, there will be many, many, many spoilers. Take it away, Alexis.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> our author Aloya Bundles grew up seeing sepia-colored pictures of her famous grandmothers. One of her famous grandmothers includes Madam C.J. Walker. Seeing those images for her felt like those women were beckoning her to tell their story. When our author was just three years old, her parents moved in with her grandfather. By this time, her grandmother May Had been dead nearly 10 years. She stayed in the bedroom that kept many of her famous grandmother's belongings. And the all black neighborhood that she grew up in was surrounded by people associated with the business that her great great grandmother built into an empire. And she was a close childhood friend of um, Madam CJ Walker's actual attorney at the time, which is his granddaughter. So she grew up with. As close friends with the (laughs) granddaughter of Madam's attorney, the author's mother, who was May, expected her to assume the role as a fourth generation executive in the Walker Company. However, she allowed our author to follow her own interests, but made sure that she knew, understood and respected the family legacy. In time, her love of words and history would move her to write the most definitive biography of Madame C.J. Walker, the legendary African American entrepreneur and philanthropist. Where others of Madame C.J. Walker's generation penned memoirs and autobiographies, Madame left only the flimsiest clues about her early life. Through the use of the press, since she regularly um, advertised there and was interviewed often, we can hear a lot of her, find a lot of her story. And personality this, through her quotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, This book is filled with a lot of surrounding historical information. So where possible, I'm going to focus primarily on just Madam C.J. Walker's life. Okay. Okay. Part one, Growing Up Sarah. Sarah Breelove was born December 23rd, 1867, to Owen and Minerva in Delta, Louisiana. Sarah had four older siblings that were slave-born, while Sarah herself was born near the five-year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. She also has a brother that's about two years younger. Sarah's mother died in 1873, possibly of cholera, of which was there was an epidemic at the time that claimed the lives of 34 people in the area that they lived. Her father uh, remarried within a year. But then in 1875, her father died. Sarah would later tell reporters that she only had three months of formal education. After the death of her parents, Sarah would live with her older married sister, Lavinia, and her husband, Jesse Powell, Sarah referred to her brother-in-law as cruel. Being orphaned at a tender age and being in a house with a cruel guardian really helped her kind of build some walls. But rather than be destroyed by his cruel behavior, Sarah learned to turn her vulnerability into resolve and resilience. Her determination to escape was her most valuable asset. Because of the violence in the area that she grew up in, economic disaster, brought on by um, bad cotton years. And then there was a yellow fever epidemic. Sarah, her sister, and her brother-in-law ended up relocating to Vicksburg. And I think Vicksburg is in Mississippi.
0: Jesse Powell was her (laughs) brother-in-law? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> remember his song, <laughs> "Baby Is You," the way you are, <laughs> the uh, way. yeah, Who knew? I remember. You that. know, they say yeah. six degrees mm-hmm. of separation. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Jesse
1: Powell, everyone was Madam C. J. Walker's brother-in-law. Go ahead. The lies. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they moved to Vicksburg, Mississippi, I believe, in hopes of finding jobs. But because um, both of them were illiterate. That is, um, her sister as well as her brother-in-law, it made it difficult. Their options were limited. In addition to that, the brother-in-law's violent temper likely added to the father's um, the family's problems. However, relocating to Vicksburg allowed Sarah to see her eldest brother.:
0: Yeah, and he could act like a protector for her. Be the father figure she so desperately needed at the time.
1: So he was already living in Vicksburg as and working as a porter at a grocery store. And so visiting her eldest brother, she would have the opportunity to pass these really manicured uh, gardens of um, Vicksburg's grand antebellum homes. She could see through shop windows, the bolts of rich fabric, the hats, the leather shoes, All the finer things in life. In a later interview, she would say that as a child, she craved for the beautiful. She had an ordinate desire to move among the things of culture and refinement. Her brother-in-law viewed her as a burden, though. So Sarah likely had to work as a laundress or uh, a job tending to the needs of uh, white children.
0: And the laundress job involved putting your hands in scalding hot water vats of water scrubbing people's unmentionables their clothing all day long bed sheets Uh, yeah so it was a miserable job that she took pride in Mm -hmm. and she always tried to do her best and present the finished clothing pristine um but that was a tough job
1: yeah a lot of hard work part two life after marriage so sarah married Moses McWilliams in 1882 at the age of 14. And she did this in order to get a home of her own. Nothing more, nothing less. The union was most likely common law since the couple would have not been able to afford the $200 uh, Mississippi uh, marriage costs. Also, there's actually no record of a marriage license on file for her being married to Mick Williams. A photographer had taken a photo a few years after their marriage, and it shows Sarah as a physically attractive woman. Her hair, however, was crudely braided and covered in a patterned head wrap. Her daughter Lilia was born June 6th, 1885. Lilia's arrival gave Sarah's life new meaning and made her determined to protect her from the cruelty, hunger, and hardship she herself had endured as a child. How uh, old
0: was uh, Madam C.J. Walker when her child was born? At this point, um, it was three years
1: later, so she was 17.
0: Yeah. It talked about her as being a beautiful woman in that photo. She was still a child, forced mm-hmm. into this adult life. Yep. yep. Yeah.
1: So just as she was getting used to being married and comfortable having a a child, Moses died. Her Mm. husband died. And that was in 1888 after Sarah's. um, And they don't they're not
0: clear about how he died. He might have even been lynched or, you know, she doesn't even talk about it. Um, But her like uh, uh, determination to end lynching later in her life, they attribute to possibly being related to Moses death. Although yeah. I feel like being black at, at that time and wanting lynchings to stop is reasonable for anybody.
1: Yeah, because there's no death death certificate nor any oral history from Sarah that um confirms that he was lynched.
0: Not that these occur, not that these events were well docu- documented or anything. So that that would be normal even if he was.
1: Yeah, she was um left all she would say in regards to her marriage with um Moses because it's even possible that he just walked away. She said she was left a widow when she was 20 years old. Sarah refused to return home to her sister and brother-in-law. So in 1889, she made the decision to head north to St. Louis like her older brothers. Part three, a new start. When Sarah and Lilia arrived in St. Louis, the Breed Law... The Breedlove brothers, and that is her maiden name, were already familiar figures in the neighborhood. There was a church um, that was there, a big church where their barbershop had been located for six years. And the brothers all lived near the family business and within eight blocks of each other as barbers. they didn't become wealthy, but they enjoyed more independence than maybe a laborer, servants, teamsters, messengers, porters, which were the common jobs held by most black men. Sarah's first place was a street well-known on the police blotter for its stabbings and murders. It was also near the dance halls, saloons, and brothels, so to, to support herself and Lilia, she worked as a laundress. More than half the Black women employed in St. Louis during this time period were washerwomen. And as Kari mentioned earlier, this is really um, hard work. This was work that was shunned by immigrants and first generation American working women. Sarah and her friends, however, preferred laundry chores because they could wash their children while they worked. This work was strenuous, done by hand in wooden wash tubs and the iron pots um, of boiling water, the wet sheets and the tablecloths doubled in weight. The lye soap was irritating to the skin. The irons were heavy, cumbersome and dangerous. This was hard work, but Sarah was a hard worker and would work late into the night to meet her Saturday delivery deadlines. Lilia started school at the DeSellings Elementary School and lived part of the week at St. Louis Colored Orphan's Home, which was less than a block away from her brother's house. That is Sarah's brother's house. Mm -hmm. One day, as Sarah was bent over the washing board working, she realized that she could not do this work forever. You hear me? She's like, what I'm going to do? I got to get out of here. I can't do this forever. I would die. I would literally die. <laughs> this is First day on like, the job,
0: I'm dead.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You arrive to work dead. Oh, yep. I'm dead. Okay, I would invent yep.
0: the first washing machine. Y'all ain't going to have me out here like this. Yeah, <laughs> make them kids running a, a hamster wheel. We can make it work. <laughs> <laughs> She's like,
1: you at my back hurt already. what else going to happen to me in 20 years? Yeah, yeah she was real. like, I'm done with this. So as she set out to reinvent herself, she began to erase the relationships and events that were too painful and shameful to acknowledge. That's maybe this story about her husband, the mm-hmm. story about her brother-in-law, the story of her parents when she was growing up after her um mother died and she was left with the father and a new mother and then the
0: father died i love this because the tragedies that happen to us don't define us so she made a decision to leave them behind with sarah whoever Mm -hmm. that is now because that ain't (laughs) even gonna be my name for long she really decided you know what whatever happens from this day on out is up to me that's right
1: so She and Loya would move around uh, maybe two or more times a year. They would go from one brother's house to another's. They were often steps away from homelessness. Sarah was connected to the St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. This church had middle-class members who considered themselves the right kind of Negroes. They had a strategy for racial progress and so when this church moved away from the area that Lilia lived in it was a big loss to the community um but the church actually because they were connected to Sarah through Lilia's orphanage they encouraged her to stay involved which was a good thing the church members included local dignitaries and prominent members Doctors, teachers, lawyers, and club women, and sec- Sarah recognized the economic clout associated with these church members.
0: I love this because so many of so many stories like this. there are women, married women who are skeptical of the single woman with a child and right. don't want to take her in, don't want to help her for fear that their husbands will be led astray. <laughs> that didn't <laughs> happen here. They was like they they were like, you know. Uh, the, they thought of themselves as the right kind of Negroes, mm-hmm. but they were generous people and they thought, you know what? You need somebody and we the people for you. We're your mm-hmm. people now. And anyway, we can help you and your child. We're going to help.
1: Yeah. That, that probably good. says
0: a lot about her, too, and her kindness and her approachableness.
1: Yeah. And in, in 1893, Sarah's eldest brother, the one she was close to, Alexander, died from an intestinal ailment. Her family now included two widows, an abandoned wife, her brother James, and Solomon. Her brother, who'd abandoned his wife, now lived in New Mexico and ran a saloon and a gambling table with his new wife, and he started a new family. And then
0: her sister <laughs> Seemed Lavinia. Like he was a good man to this new wife. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: but for how That's long? That's how be sometimes. I know. <laughs> her That's sister Lavinia, who was married to Jesse. That's the one that was cruel, had a son who was convicted of manslaughter and sent to a notorious prison. So her family was in were grieving the loss of this brother. Her family was in disarray. Sarah drifted into it. And it says drifted into a relationship with a man by the name of John Davis, who had recently arrived from the town. Twenty five miles south of St. Louis. Since he had no home of his own, guess where he lived? That's right, with Sarah and her nine-year-old daughter. And that was in the spring of 1894. They married a few months later on August 11th. A decade later, she would begin to process the process of getting rid of this man, okay? (laughs) Getting rid of him. And it was a process. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. During this time... Washerwomen were the breadwinners, and not because husbands didn't want to work, but because recent uh, European immigrants were crowding them out of the market. She would later learn that Davis was, guess what? He'd be shirking his stuff, okay? He wasn't trying to do right. He had a girlfriend, <laughs> he was a drunkard, and he was living up on his wages. Yeah, oh. He was a scoundrel. He was giving up his wages, not living <laughs> up. He was giving up his wages, okay, to other people. And he would strike and beat Sarah. Mm-mm. He was not good. During this tumultuous time, Lilia missed school. So at one point she was like doing really well when the home was doing really well. And then whenever it was happening with the family, she would miss all this school. And so that affected her ability to um, go to the like best school in the area. At the yeah. because The
0: speculation is baby Sarah would leave her husband periodically if the beatings got too bad or if his um, infidelity and squandering his money became too much to handle, she would leave with her daughter. And so the daughter was taken out of school. So on records, the daughter pops in and out of the school record. And that of course affected her grades and her placement the little Mm -hmm. girl's placement in school. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. So she ends up sending her daughter to Knoxville College, which included high school and college level courses. And while Lilia is away, two of her remaining, um, two of her mother's remaining brothers, three brothers, died within eight months of each other. Good grief. The family can't get a break. Mm -mm. In 1903, In 1903, just weeks after Sarah's 36th birthday, John Davis claimed Sarah deserted him and he moved in with his girlfriend. So audacious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But the couple never legally divorced. Hold that. Sarah started seeing a man named Charles Joseph Walker. Walker was a newsman of sorts. He likely sold subscriptions and advertising and may have done some reporting for one of St. Louis's three black newspapers. He may have also worked as a barber in a saloon, the kind of jobs that helped him hone his skills of persuasion. He was impressive. He had more formal education than Sarah. Um, Sarah's three months, so, and he kind of matched her ambition.
0: Yeah, he was ambitious like her and he knew how to present himself. He knew how to look good, talk good. He's cast by Blair Underwood in the miniseries. So there you go. Uh, Period.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Say no more. He was a mix of a bolster, a charmer, a self-promoter, fancying himself a natural born salesman. And he loved fine suits and well-shined shoes. And, you know, Sarah liked fine things too. Mm Mm-hmm. So a friend encouraged, now a friend from the church, and I believe this woman's name was Jessica. Well, it doesn't matter. She had a friend um, and it was associated with the church. And that friend encouraged her to join this court of Calanthe. And this was this uh, secret society developed by blacks um, during the 19th century for the health and social welfare of their communities. This gave Sarah an opportunity to develop social skills while also doing good deeds. And Sarah had also started to kind of take some night school classes, even though they can't find any record of that. But she took some night school classes. Mm -hmm. Her relationship with CJ made her more self-assured and it improved her status. The only problem was her hair. After she'd married John Davis, her hair started to fall out. That man was stressing her out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And while this was a common complaint for women of this era due to a combination of infrequent washing, illness, high fever, scalp disease, low protein diets, and damaging hair treatments, stress caused by Davis likely aggravated her condition. But Sarah knew it was time to get rid of the head, head wrap she was trying to advance in society, and the head—yeah, the head
0: wrap looked country to her. She decided, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. and she which was a concern life.
0: brought up by a lot of northern people. Like, stop wearing that handkerchief on your head. We in the north now. <laughs> yeah, don't you remember in the um, yeah warmth of other suns <laughs> in the water- and stop? You know, hanging out on your porch. You know, <laughs> stop cooking this. in the front yard. Stop You're making it. us
1: look bad. You're making us look bad. Would you stop it, please? Oh, bougie folks. <laughs> Part four, minding hair business. Okay.
0: Oh, that's cute. Minding hair business. Girl, that's good. You wrote okay, that. That's, that's good. Idea.
1: You know, I tried just a little bit. <laughs> Sarah said she tried everything mentioned to her hair without any results. She said she was on the verge of becoming entirely bald. Ashamed of the frightful appearance of her hair and desperate for a solution, she prayed for guidance. She said her prayer was answered. A big black man appeared in her dream and told her what to mix up. Some of the remedy was from Africa. So she sent for it, mixed it up, and began to use it. A Later, few folks weeks, was
0: like, um, that remedy is from the uh, Walgreens <laughs> down the street, but we going to let it go. We're going to let it go. And see what you're doing.
1: In a few mm-hmm. weeks, her hair was coming in faster than it had fallen out. She shared it with her daughter and her neighbors, and it worked for them. She started to sell it. These accounts of her discovery, embellished with claims of divine Providence and Intervention served as an ingenious marketing device. I was on
0: the verge of becoming entirely bald. Sarah often told other women, ashamed of the frightful appearance of her hair and desperate for a solution, she prayed to the Lord for guidance. He answered my prayer. She vouched. For one night, I had a dream, and in that dream, a big black man appeared to me and told me what to mix for my hair. Some of the remedy was from Africa, but I sent for it, mixed it, put it on my scalp, and in a few weeks, my hair was coming in faster than it had ever fallen out. After obtaining the same results on her daughter and her neighbors, she later told a reporter, I made up my mind, I would begin to sell it. But going into business had not been her original goal. When I made my discovery, I had no idea of placing it on the market for the benefit of others. I was simply in search of something that would save or restore my own hair. This miraculous concoction, she believed, was nothing less than an inspiration from God. A heaven-sent gift for her to place in the reach of those who appreciate it. She ate beautiful hair and healthy scalps, which is the glory of women. Sarah's account of her discovery embellished with claims of divine providence and intervention proved to be an ingenious marketing device. By also invoking Africa, she invested her potion with the magical power of herbal medicine still practiced by some of her potential customers. Her secret ingredient she maintained came not from the sources known to the white-owned hair preparations manufacturers whose ads regularly characterized. Black women in St. Louis Negro weeklies, but from a big Black man and the land of her ancestors.
1: Sarah grew up knowing the value placed on hair texture and skin color. As a woman with African features, she frequently was reminded of the American standard of beauty. Hair care or lack of it was a carefully calibrated indicator of class, no more so than among middle-class Blacks who watched the steady flow of deep South newcomers. We talked about this. Most of them unsophisticated, uneducated, and haphazardly groomed as Sarah had been when she arrived. Eager to care, cure her baldness, Sarah likely tried some of the concoctions that claimed to grow and simultaneously straighten her hair. These claims led to the popular magazines such as the Ladies Home Journal and Collier's Weekly to expose the firm's misleading claims during 1904 and 1905, which further led to the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, requiring manufacturers to deliver the results that they promised. Sarah said during her many years of research endeavoring to find something to improve her own hair and preparations manufactured by others. I was always unsuccessful, but another St. Louis woman charged (laughs) that Sarah's late night revelations was entirely fabricated and that her research was filched. In fact, (laughs) Annie Minerva Turnbow, her products were sold under Turnbow Pope, asserted that she personally restored Sarah's hair. Oh no, Minerva getting on Minerva's. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) She Uh hating.
1: Uh-oh. Okay, Turnbull arrived in St. Louis in 1902 and she was from Illinois and she came to capitalize on the 1904 World Fair. And while we don't know how the two women actually met, we do know that Sarah was one of... Pope Turnbull's earliest sales agents, probably joining her sometime in 1903. Pope Turnbull taught her clients to shampoo their hair more often because clean scalps mean clean bodies and better appearance means greater business opportunities, higher social standing, cleaner living and beautiful homes. Neither women actually originated the sulfur based formula they both use. Home remedies and medicinal compounds with the similar ingredients to the ones they use have been prescribed since at least the 16th century. Many white owned businesses openly exploited the insecurities many African-Americans had developed about their distinctive hair texture, knowing that tightly coiled hair would automatically appear several inches longer when straightened. Yeah, they would sell these
0: mixtures that would straighten your hair and that they're claiming is growing it because yeah. kinky hair is just longer, of course, when it's straight. Duh. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Scalp specialists like Sarah and Pope Turnbull considered their work separate and apart from these uh, much criticized hair straighteners. What distinguished them and their motivations was their race. Sarah would not be the first to conceive the idea, but in time, she is the one that catapulted catapulted it to unprecedented horizons as Sarah continued to work as a sales agent for Annie Pope Turnbull Sarah felt she was making a difference her customers were happy once their hair began to grow and was off and that was all the proof that she needed that she was making a difference in their lives or performing a useful service and just as Sarah boasted Um, boosted her scalp treatment skills, her income, her personal vision of herself. You know, she was, you know, building self-esteem essentially. (laughs) She now felt it was time to reinvent herself. So she relocated to Denver, believing that there was a market for black women needing her help. So when she arrived in Denver in July of 1905, she had only $1.50 in her pocket. Mm -hmm. I don't even have that right now. (laughs) selling the Pope Turnbull product on the side. She quickly found a job as a cook in a boarding house. It's also possible that she was working for a wholesale druggist who offered to analyze the Pope Turnbull product so she could leave, leave out some or put some more in and make some money herself. (laughs) Seed was planted. Sarah also took out weekly advertisements in the local paper, the local Negro paper, to sell the Pope Turnbull product and get herself known in the community. When Charles Joseph, CJ, her husband, or or her boyfriend at the time, arrived in Denver, they married on January 4th, 1906, and Sarah began calling herself. Mrs. C.J. Walker, in March of 1906. And by late July 1906, she began selling Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. Madam hit other towns in Colorado and began teaching others how to use and sell the Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. And upon completion, they would secure like a letter of instruction, uh, like a certificate teaching them how to grow their own hair. And she offered her courses at very reasonable prices so that even the very poorest could benefit. And while Madam was off selling her products, teaching her courses and preparing to broaden the, her market outside of Colorado, Lilia had taken a hair growing course in St. Louis in order to prepare herself to take charge of her mother's business. Likely learning these skills from guess who? Pope Turnbull. <laughs> In September of 1906, Madam Walker had disassociated herself entirely from Annie Pope Turnbull, who had become angry enough to denounce her publicly. She said, It's people out here selling their own product like I didn't grow their hair. Can you just imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> I can see that happening. She, <laughs> she <But> out here <laughs> selling her stuff like I didn't grow her hair, okay? Yeah,
0: but I love uh, Madam C.J. Walker's responses. They were always classy. She was going high. hmm
1: she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Turnbull said, beware of imitations. Satisfied customers of Madam Walker replied to Pope Turnbull, said, until Madam Walker arrived, we never even heard anything about <laughs> a hair grower. And this was the beginning of a rival between the, the two ladies. By the time of their departure, Madam
0: Walker had disassociated herself entirely from Annie Pope Turnbull, who had become angry enough to denounce her publicly. The proof of the value of our work is that we are being imitated and largely by person whose own hair we have actually grown, Pope Turnbull accused in a letter to the statesman. They have very frequently mentioned us when trying to sell their goods, saying that theirs is the same or just as good. Beware of imitations. Now that Madam Walker had her own formula, the rivalry that would poison the two women's relationship had commenced. In reply to Pope Turnbull's accusations about Madam Walker, eight satisfied Pueblo customers asserted that Madam Walker had never claimed her preparation was the same or as good as yours, but she does claim her preparation is the best on the market. As long as they could secure Madam Walker's goods, they vowed that it was their intention never to use Pope Turnbo's products. Until Madam Walker came here, we never heard of any hair grower. You are in St. Louis, and as far as you were concerned, we could have been ball-headed until now. So we consider your efforts purely spite work and see by your letter of a few months ago to the ladies of the West how highly you recommended her. Sarah undoubtedly appreciated the endorsement, but she was more than capable of engaging Pope Turbo herself. Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower has proven beyond question to be the most wonderful hair preparation yet discovered. Her latest ad trumpeted. It is soothing to the scalp and brings quicker results than any other.
1: After Lilia came... To Colorado, she revised the advertisements for the business and began taking customers. And by May the following year, Pope Turnbull decided, listen, I need to get in there. And she dispatched <laughs> a replacement agent to a parlor two blocks from Lilia's shop. The same week, the paper printed an announcement that Madam C.J. Walker and Miss McWilliams are closing up shop and leaving Denver. Madam realized that there was limited potential for growth in Colorado and she needed to head to the south and expand to the north to gain her success. She further realized that the key to her success was not the secret formula but her deep understanding that women wanted to be attractive and her fervent conviction that they needed to be financially independent. Part five, growth and expansion. Within a few months of leaving Denver, Madam Walker could boast an income greater than all, but the most highly paid American corporate executives. Madam's first full year on the road, she took in $3,652, nearly tripling her total 1906 earnings, defying all doubters. Among the doubters was her husband, CJ. Yep, he doubted her. Inspired <laughs> by the popularity, though, of Madam Success, Mister C.J. offered his own products that he could cleanse impure blood and in eczema, tetter, and falling out hair. But his products were similar to the alcohol-laden concoctions that the 1906 Food and Drug Act intended to ban. So he was a little shady. Mm -hmm. While on the road, Madam realized her business was expanding too quickly to handle their mail order sales from the road. So she opened a temporary headquarters in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Madam tapped into her connections to advertise because at the time there was no black newspaper for her to post. In 1909, her husband is listed as an editor in a Pittsburgh city directory in hopes that he himself would fill that void. Meanwhile, Madame got respected church and civic leaders to sign a letter endorsing her work with the intention of enhancing her standing in the community. And in 18, excuse me, in 1908, she nearly doubled her earnings from the previous year and the next year earnings increased by 25 percent to eight thousand eight hundred seventy two dollars. She also landed a covered feature article in the Pennsylvania Negro Business Directory, calling her one of the most successful businesswomen of the race in this community. Madam continued to perfect her sales pitch using compelling common sense lessons since many of her students only recently left the farms of the South, she used agricultural analogies, which were the most effective teaching tools. She said. Do you realize it is necessary to cultivate the scalp to grow hair just as it is is to cultivate the soil to grow a garden? Right. Just as a farmer turned the soil around plants, she advised her students to loosen and remove the dandruff that blocked the flow of air and blood to the scalp. That's
0: pretty like revolutionary at that time because that's the
1: truth. Yeah, it is.
0: And she didn't have, I mean, she didn't have a lab that she was working with, right? Mm -mm. She knew this mostly from experience and logic.
1: (laughs) Yep. Soil that will grow grass will grow a plant. If the grass is removed and the soil is cultivated, the plant will be very healthy. The same applies to the scout. So those were some of her analogies. Yeah. Hoping to hit the road again to cover the untapped markets of the East Coast, she groomed 23-year-old Lilia to run the company. Lilia was in Bluefield, West Virginia, teaching the courses and making agents. And a year after her trip to Bluefield, she marries John Robinson. I mean, that's out of the blue. The new <laughs> moved in to Lilia's well-furnished Pittsburgh home, of course and she continued operating the supply station for Walker agents while madam was on the road again looking for another city with a more viable black business presence. In 1910, white firms wanted her to buy her wanted to buy her out, but madam preferred to keep it in the race. They moved their headquarters to Pennsylvania from Pennsylvania to Indianapolis, and madam was was learning that her loser husband
0: who wrote that you did you calling that man a loser
1: <laughs> what, okay go ahead what was his name in the, what was his name in the movie say it again who Blair Underwood Blair Underwood yep mm-hmm. <laughs> was he a loser character
0: yeah for sure okay. he was yep mm-hmm. yep
1: Okay, so anyway, (laughs) she found out he was a loser, but she was still hoping that he would make some improvements. Okay, Madam also was eager to join Booker T. Washington's Negro National Negro Business League. Washington was the nation's most well-known advocate for black entrepreneurs, but he also opposed membership into the league for cosmetics and manufacturing is cosmetics manufacturers on the grounds that they fostered imitation of white beauty standards. So she made like every effort to reach out to him and he would refute her with every way kindly. But she was so determined to make this connection. She kept at it. Did you feel like he was maybe sexist?
0: Was that what was stopping him from accepting her into his fold?
1: <laughs> um, that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely part of it because he had heard of her. But then there was that thing about the cosmetics industry. Yeah. So, yeah, the cosmetics industry was seen as like frivolous and he was
0: about serious business people. Like, yeah, exactly.
1: So, Madam Walker saw the need to kind of shore up her lack of formal education and she knew she needed competent advisor, advisors and employees. So, she hired Freeman Riley Ransom, as an attorney. He was very disciplined, Lilia recalled. His attention to detail and high moral standards were just what Madam needed to systematize the operation of her business. As a young man, Ransom had taken an oath of sobriety upon joining the YMCA. In those days, you had to pledge that you'd never drink, dance, or gamble. Dance never gamble. Never. Drink, (laughs) dance, or gamble. Okay? This man never drank, <laughs> never danced, and never gambled.
0: You know, you don't want to drink or uh, gamble, fine.
1: But you can't dance either? No. That was a little much. That, that was a little much, but they had okay. to do it. Commit. Commitment. She also hired Robert Lee Brokenberg who would later become the first black senator in Indiana. By the end of 1910, Madam had exceeded expectations, reaching $10,000, $10,989. Her personal life wasn't faring as well. Her husband had been traveling in the South and she wasn't eager to see him. The more um, clearly she plotted out her future, the more disconnected their lives had become. Lillia's husband... He abruptly left the marriage after less than a year. And friends say that he had grown to resent her independence.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Almost instantly.
1: Yeah. Madam yeah. has several streams of income. Okay. She was busy. She was buying investment property. She was opening her home to rent her. She was doing her hair in, her, in the house. She was buying new buildings for business. She was making business moves. Mm-hmm. So she had Broken Burr formally draw up articles of incorporation for the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company of Indiana. Unable to attract, and attract investors such as Booker T. Washington, Madam Walker likely put up her home for the $10,000 collateral needed for the corporation's capital stock. Her relationship with C.J. continued to be questionable. While C.J. had the ability to be charming, a charming companion and an effective salesman he continued to squander and mismanage their money Madame was co- increasingly concerned with current events and political affairs but he seemed to only focus on cars clothes and unbeknownst to his wife other women mm. She, I think she knew On October 5th, after CJ had failed to appear in the judge's chambers, the divorce was made final. According to the docket, no money was paid to either party. Madam Walker would publicly maintain that her third marriage had failed because of business disagreements. And perhaps in the larger sense, that was true. CJ himself conceded that they could not agree along business lines. At times, CJ's entreaties were pitifully melodramatic. My heart is changed, he vowed. Doubtless when his wallet was empty. I am tired of Louisville and am writing these lines with tears dripping from my eyes. In another letter, he whined about his rheumatism and accused her of ignoring his pleas. But Madam Walker had long since lost any sympathy for the man Ransom had accused of selling her formula to others and of teaching it to some three or four women. As Madam Walker's buffer, Ransom warned CJ against any unwarranted legal actions he might try to mount. Madam Walker, he threatened, would spend every penny that she ever had in court before she would agree to give you one penny. For the rest of his life, C.J. Walker would try but fail to maneuver his way back into the company that was to make his name a household word. The Walker women weren't having much success with matters of the heart and no legal family heir existed. By nineteen twelve, with no prospective groom in place, twenty-seven-year-old Lilia legally adopted thirteen-year-old Fairy Mae Bryant, less than three weeks after her mother's divorce was granted. Now, Fairy Mae Bryant, this is our author's grandmother. You with me? Sure. Fairy Mae may have served as a young girl solicitor to the company. So she was out maybe de- making deliveries of the product. But Madame noticed Fairy Mae's long, thick rope like braids that reached below her waist and saw her as the perfect dramatic illustration of her hair care system. After some hesitation, Fairy Mae's mother agreed to the adoption. The adoption changed her name from Fairy Mae to Mae Walker Robinson. So C.J. Walker,
0: Madam C.J. Walker saw in this girl the perfect walking ad and said, hey, I'll adopt your daughter. And for real, this makes more sense because I'm be traveling with my business and you, you know, I'll care for her and provide her with the best education. And the mama was like, oh, I love my baby, though. Um, But she thought about it and really it was for the child's best interest. And Madam C.J. Walker, to her credit, took good care of the girl who adopted her, Madam C.J. Walker or Lelia?
1: Uh, Lilia.
0: Lilia. Okay. So, yeah. So that's why. Yeah. and Not Madam C.J. Walker, but the daughter
1: adopted the little girl. Right. Her, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter adopted the little girl. And they did allow them to still see each other. She could still, I mean, she was 13 at this point. She had a whole relationship with her family. So she still maintained those connections. Yeah. It didn't seem like anything cruel was going on. Right. Right. Yeah. By August of 1912, Walker had taken yearly income of more than 32,000. Now this is 8 months into the year. She is making what is equivalent today as $872,000. Ooh. <laughs> Madam continued to expand her business and her connections. She also continued in her charitable donations and support of social issues. Lilia was designing a property in New York that would help them to establish and grow their business in a New York area, which was now becoming the black metropolis. And by mid-year 1960, her annual sales were above 100,000, which is about 2.7 million today. Whoa. And that is actually the start Um, Mid-year 1916 was the start of the Great Migration. So she was really starting to see an influx of business for her in this area. In 1917, she had a near tragedy with a train. There was a car crossing the tracks and it looked around. I guess the driver of her car looked around and a train was kind of barreling down on them with no bell ringing, no nothing. It was just coming. And this really shook Madame up for several days. They ended up calling the doctor in and he told her that her blood pressure was high and that she needed to take no less than six weeks off. The nervousness that the doctor noticed was brought on by overexertion. But she was also suffering from hypertension and early but not yet diagnosed kidney disease. So she spent some time at a spa just as a way to take a break. But this didn't really slow her down. She got right back up and started her same busy schedule again. Mm-hmm. Madam now sent Lilia to Florida and Cuba to expand the business. And she was building a property where she would live in New York called Villa Loaro. This property would come to be described by the New York Times as a wonder house with a degree of elegance and extravagance that a princess might envy. It was also called the wealthiest spot of ground in the world in proportion t- to its population and one of the showplaces of the entire Hudson East Shore. Her 1918 earnings had jumped to 275,000, which is 4.7 million today. That's that year. Wow. But her expenses from building Villa Lawaro have ballooned to <laughs> 329000 leaving Happy. her with $5,000 in the bank. <laughs> Do you hear me? <laughs> Listen, that was December, in By the end of January 2019, excuse me, January 1919, she had taken in $26,000, nearly $400,000 in today's dollars. So she celebrated. What did she do? <laughs> she went shopping. Sis went out and bought her a 3.3 I feel carat- like you're judging. <laughs> nope. Sis went out and bought her a diamond. She got the money in the bank and it's still coming. Why yeah. not? Shop it yeah. up. mm mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> She bought her matching earrings that weigh 7.2 carats. Mm-hmm. She had every reason to believe she was on her way to millionaire status. That's right. Get that money, honey. Buy yourself some <laughs> gifts. You deserve <laughs> it. You worked hard. I mean, she had laid out this Villa Loaro. You hear me? Laid it out. In February 1919, Madam hosted a house full of people at Villa Loaro after Harlem's Hellfighters that's a military uh, foot unit that spent more time in combat than any other American unit. They had come home from France. She even invited the soldiers to consider the house their own during a two week long open house. Among the house guests was her physician, Joseph Ward, who noticed that Madam Walker's health was deteriorating. Her kidney disease was starting to show us signs of bloating. And lethargy. Mm -hmm. So he asked her to curtail any upcoming speaking engagements. Just sit down, take a break. Lilia was in the Caribbean at the time, expanding the business. And while she rested for a while, Madam was back up again, promoting her latest products in St. Louis. But by April 25th, she was in such critical condition, she had to return home to Villa Luaro. And convinced that these were her final days, she had Ransom, her attorney, draft and sign an updated will hmm. before the end of the day. By May 5th, Madam was confined to Villa Lawaro too weak to consider making plans. And while she wanted Lilia to come home and see her, their relationship, while they loved each other dearly... Um, Lillia kind of felt like her mother was. What was, what is the word? She was a helicoptering the way she managed the business Mm -hmm. and like micromanaging her. Yeah. And um, she didn't like that. So Mm -hmm. she wanted to be careful. She wanted to see her daughter because she felt like she was dying, but she didn't want to put that pressure on her. If it was just a temporary thing, if she was going to get over it in a day. So, her daughter was on her way back. She just didn't tell her to rush it. She got a letter from Lilia um, and she was telling her, I made a decision. I'm going to marry Kennedy. He's great. I love him. We're going to get married soon. But he was still married at the time. But Okay. Anyway, but Madam was excited. She was happy. This kind of made her, gave her a boost of energy. So she wrote her daughter a letter. She was like, I am so happy you are marrying this guy. This is great. He's better for you. She started talking about the future.
0: Like when y'all do this and I'm going to do this mm-hmm. and then this is what we going to do. Yeah. Yeah. She was really happy
1: about her daughter marrying this married man. Yeah. At the same time, Madam Walker hesitated to ask Lilia to return, reluctant to interfere with her efforts to establish her own footing. If I must go, I want to see my daughter lilia but if the crisis passes i would not like to disturb her pleasure she had said before leaving st louis other members of the household however had already wired lilia of her mother's fragile state three days later on monday may 19th just before madam walker lost consciousness dr ward heard her say i want to live to help my race that same day Lilia cabled from Cologne, Panama, that she had booked herself and May on the next ship. But with international maritime travel in the southern hemisphere subject more to freight requirements than passengers' needs, Lilia was at the mercy of unpredictable schedules. The specific reason for her delayed departure. Are unknown, but it was to be nearly a week before she and May would leave Central America. That Thursday, a cold, gloomy rain only deepened the sad reality that a semi conscious Madam Walker could no longer speak or see. Near midnight on Saturday, when she slipped into an irreversible coma, Dr. Ward warned that she could not last longer than Sunday. Throughout the night, Doctors Kennedy and Ward, along with Madam Walker's nurses and the other women of the household, took turns monitoring her from around the four-poster bed. Then, on Sunday morning, May 25th, shortly after the grandfather clock at the other end of the upstairs hallway chimed seven times, Dr. Ward broke the silence with the announcement all had feared. It is over, he said quietly. Lilia and May adopted daughter, received word of Madam's death while they were on the ocean heading back. Expecting her arrival soon, they like thought she was going to get there by the end of the week. Ransom, the attorney, planned the funeral for the following Friday or for that Friday. Lillian May didn't come, didn't arrive until Saturday afternoon. Many newspapers called her a millionaire, but in truth, the value of her assets of her estate was closer to $600,000, which is like $9 million today. Mm -hmm. She had a large tax liability and $100,000 in outstanding bequests. Throughout her career, Madam often corrected the misconception many people had about her products. She never, ever claimed to straighten hair. She considered herself a hair culturist. Part six, what happened to Lilia? Lilia married three days after her her mother died. Now, she did not marry the man that she told her mother was she was going to marry because that man was not yet divorced. So she
0: <laughs> married the other man. And she was in the mood to get married. So she was like, well, it's <laughs> got to be somebody else then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds so reasonable yeah it just,
1: it's reasonable yeah. until the other man is ready <laughs> yes. then I'll marry him too whatever so she married the other man the one less suitable and they separated in 1921 surprise surprise <laughs> and they would later divorce in 1922 Lilia would later change her name to a li- to a Lilia and eventually she would marry the man her mother wanted her to marry only to divorce him five years later after a long distance marriage. Now, they never lived in the same house. That was crazy because he lived in the south and she was like, I'll be like traveling the
0: world and living in the north and you cute. So we're going to stay married, but I'm never going to live with you down
1: here. They said she must yeah. have came there like three times. Maybe. She went trying she to She got go off the uh, she got off the train like, hmm, this nice."
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> she <laughs> was not interested. "Oh, show me your little house.
1: Oh, this your little yard. Oh, this your little job. This cute for you." Yeah, so like her mother had extravagant taste. A- Lilia had extravagant taste as well. She built this beautiful home in New York, just like her mother did. And she was spending all kinds of money in that. And when her mother finally saw it, she loved it as well. But they just had that similar expensive um, taste. Okay, so the business would continue to excel two years after Madame's death. In 1920, the company would make $595,000, 595000 which is like $7.7 7 today. And in mm-hmm. October um, 1929, the stock market crashed and the Walker Company took a turn. They had to sell Villa Lawaro, that great, beautiful mansion that she had designed. Mm-hmm. And in August of 1931, ransom dealt Lilia a blow. They were only making enough money to take care of payroll and they could do nothing with their outstanding bills. It's not really clear whether or not Lillia received that letter, but three days after that letter, she and her friends drove to New Jersey for a weekend birthday party. (laughs) She was hanging out with her friends. And on Sunday, after a day at the ocean and decadent lifestyle, (laughs) Lillia woke Mm. to a headache. So severe she couldn't see. At five thirty the next morning, she was pronounced dead of a brain hemorrhage. The end. Let's take a quick break. Oh, it's dark. Okay. <laughs> a lot, right? And there's just so much more detail in that story that I just could not include. Otherwise, we'd be here all night long. So, Kari, what are your final thoughts and would you recommend the book?
0: I appreciate the story of Madam C.J. Walker, someone who came from nothing and became successful in the realm of commerce, who started her own business and then thrived and then thrived uh, with what she created I love that. However, I will say that this book to me was slow going. Um, It was, it seemed to uh, labor with the, it seemed to complete, complete, no, it was detailed, but it left off any emotional connection to these real life characters. Mm. And maybe that's what the screenwriter um, felt too, when they developed this mini series, self-made that um, was inspired by this book and by this story, because it's nothing like the story. Truthfully, everything in the story, these are really in, um, intriguing aspects throughout her life. and they could have been told more in a way that um, again, just were more captivating emotionally. At first, I thought, well, because it's not from Madame C. J. Walker's, own mouth or from her point of view it's hard for me to develop a closeness to her as a character mm. uh, quote unquote it is nonfiction, but um, then I thought about the warmth of other sons and I loved all them people them three people um, so I don't know what was I don't know what where the disconnection was. Likely it's just my fault. Um, But I I felt really fatigued reading this book. It was tedious from beginning to end for me, and I would probably not recommend it. Yet the story of Madam C.J. Walker is so important and it is so um, intriguing. It, It is a very interesting story, very inspiring story. But I didn't get that from the book, which felt more like just details. Um, again, with the cooking metaphor, it felt like a bag of ingredients, but no dish. So that's my final verdict. I really enjoy the story of Madam CJ Walker, but I didn't enjoy reading this book and I probably wouldn't recommend it, unfortunately. Um, what about you? I hate to say it because it's such a, it's such an important story and it is engaging, but I wasn't engaged by the way it was presented. What about you? What were your first thoughts? And would you recommend this book?
1: You know, I... I can absolutely appreciate what you're saying because I couldn't find the words um, to what it was about the book that made it feel for me kind of boring. And I think it was all the facts, the extra facts um, talking about what was going on at the time. But I value all that information aside from the fact that um, I felt like it was I want to say a hard read. I don't know if the words was just too little for me. <laughs> it was a lot of words on a page, but I,
0: <laughs> the words were too little. i never heard that complaint. Okay. They were too little for me. Okay. Use some bigger words so I can be interested. Mm-hmm. No, I'm talking about font
1: size. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. It was mm-hmm. too many words on a page. <laughs> okay, on. There was a lot of information. You just read
0: Anna Karenina, so I'm going to ignore that. Go ahead.
1: That was different. That was different anyway, Mm -hmm. but I would recommend the book and I absolutely Mm. would read it again because I, I liked reading those details. I I liked hearing all the people that she was connected to. She was involved in philanthropy. She kind of chased Booker T. Washington a little bit. And when he snubbed Mm -hmm. her, she came for him and she showed him who she was. And after, after that, he gave her so much respect. So I like learning about those little facts about her. And that is why I would definitely recommend it. It's just a, um, for me, it was a a difficult read. But I would still. She
0: claimed her voice and identity in a room full of men that were commanders in the world of business. She stood up and spoke when she wasn't. Um, asked to. <laughs> she made exactly. sure she was heard appropriately in any situation. She made sure she was heard and that she was what she was doing was seen as valuable. And her focus was always on uplifting the race. She wanted to do for people who were in her situation, who she wanted to do for, um, for black people. Um, so. I really respect that. I, I lo- love that aspect of her determination mm-hmm. and confidence. Yeah, it's a lot her, to learn. You know, strong work ethic. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: that's a lot to learn from her story. And um, yeah, it was, it was a worthy read for me. Well, what are we
0: reading next week, Alexis? Girl on the Train? <laughs> no, the we're woman reading from from the train. nothing oh. because we're taking a break. <laughs> <laughs> a break! yeah you guys we need a break we've been reading a book every week for i don't know how long have we had this podcast 15 years so we're (laughs) gonna take a week (laughs) it's getting heavy we are gonna take a week off that means there will be no show (gasps) for the first time ever since we started there will be no show september 3rd we're taking the that three-day weekend and we're going to make the most of it. We will come back September 10th with Girl on the Train. That sounds Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And thank you all for listening to Lit Society. So we'll see you on the 10th of September. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Saneria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love y'all too. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing, amazing email newsletter. Amazing. And until next time. <laughs> and until next time, read read something. something.